right, uh, back in the Young Turks. Uh, we're gonna have a very fun uh, post game for you guys, uh, where we might uh, talk a little bit about how uh, the food industry is saying that you're not allowed to call vegan hot dogs hot dogs. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. Tyt.com/trial if you want to get membership. Get all of our shows anytime you want, including the post game. That's just for members. Okay. Uh, let's go to our guest. Joining me now is Jared Hill. He's the host on Channel Q. Uh, we're going to find out what that is in a second. Uh, the <laughs> show dropped the subject with Ali Johnson and, and Jared uh, are uh, on that. So first, yes. okay, what is Channel Q? Channel Q is a brand new station. We are we launched in October, and we're the first and only FM station um, that is national and FM. So you can pick it up in various different cities. We're on in. 20 different cities around the country right now, and we stream live on radio.com so people can get us in the cities that we're not on in yet. Um, and yeah, that's basically the, the general gist of what we do, yeah. Okay, so uh, I know Sirius Satellite Radio has an LGBT station, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but I uh, remember when I was in radio and we actually started the Young Turks on, on radio, on Sirius Satellite Radio, but they also let us go into syndication. Yeah. <clears throat> and it was really hard to pick up stations. Because people would say, "Oh no, we're all conservative talk, and so we don't have room for progressives, which is what you guys are sure. on there." So that's why Sirius gave us some space for progressives and LGBT shows, etc. So. Is radio substantially different now? Uh, how is this uh, possible? Well, I feel like we don't we don't have like a political leaning, but I mean, being gay, being black is inherently political, right? Being gay is inherently political in a lot of ways. So in that way, we do have like a progressive leaning uh, kind of conversation on a lot of the different shows that we're on. But we are part of Intercom, so we're in you know our companies in hundreds of different cities uh, with hundreds of different stations. And so really we've benefited from being a part of this major uh, brand that is all over the country and being able to really be able to come into the homes and cars and you know phones of people around the country. So, so uh, just a quick like note on how people can find you. Let's sure. say they're in one of the cities that you're in, Vegas, Phoenix, LA, etc., San Francisco. Can they go to a website and look up what channel number it is? Absolutely. Our website is wearechannelq.com. Um, you can stream us live on channel Q, wearechannelq.com slash listen. You can stream us anywhere. Um, you can get the radio.com app where you can be able to tune into our full day's programming of shows. Um, and then we have our, all of our shows are also podcasted. So anywhere that you get podcasts, you can type in, drop the subject, and find uh, my show that I host with my co-host Allie um, and, and all of the array of shows. One of the big shows that we um, actually have now is called Loveline. People have known Loveline for a long time, and uh, I said to the host there, I was like, it's kind of full circle for me to be on this show because I used to sneak and listen to Loveline as a kid and felt like I was doing something you know, uh-huh. that I wasn't supposed to be doing. So we have really, really great shows, and um, we're growing very, very quickly. So is I presume Loveline in this context is gay Loveline. Well, no, I mean, I mean, yes, like our, our host is a, a gay man who's a doctor, but like, it's not about just being gay, right? It's mm-hmm. like love, sex, and relationships crosses beyond just being gay for sure. So, mm-hmm. like, we have conversations on that show that are about love, sex, relationships, but also I go on that show sometimes and, and have conversations about the intersections of love and politics. Like, the last time I was on there, we talked about what do you do if you're dating someone who is on the opposite end of the political spectrum. What I was calling, you know, interpolitical relationships, right? Like, what do you mm-hmm. do if you find out that your partner voted for Donald Trump and you didn't? Like, how do you even navigate that? So that was a conversation that we had on Love Line. Other than Dave Rubin, is there anyone left that voted for Trump who's in the LGBTQ community? I mean, there's there's a very <laughs> small number, I would imagine. But I mean, other than like, yes, his his. Uh, 
deputy press secretary maybe and like a handful of people that they can maybe pull on CNN sometimes. Yeah. But there's not, I don't think there's a whole lot. Yeah, I know some- uh, And he certainly won't be getting more in this next election, I would imagine. You would imagine, but some people find their tax cuts so alluring. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Like right. whenever, whenever I hear that, I'm like, are you really that excited about tax cuts? Or are you like really leaning into the immigration pieces? Or are you really just need to have more conversation about race? Or are you really like, what is that about whenever I hear that? So. Yeah, because just because you're in one community doesn't mean you support all the other communities. Absolutely. And so- uh, and that's what you know the concept of being intersectional is all about. That you should care about all those things, but right wingers uh, can very hard for them to see outside of their own bubble. Absolutely. So, like in their bubble, they might be gay, but they're like, yeah, but that doesn't mean I have to like black people or or Hispanics, and yeah, I don't yeah. I don't want these Latinos in my country, etc. And there are plenty of gay people who don't want to be gay, who think that it's wrong to be gay, that are in the closet, that run the spectrum, right? So, like, yeah. just being a part of community does not make you a, a part of like the political perspective that might be assigned to it. Yeah, I, I want to get to uh, the essence of your show in a second. To I just quick last story on that is. Look, you never know how much good you're doing with your show, with the whole station, etc. Because one of the best stories, if not the best story I ever read about our effect was a young gay kid in Germany who happened to be Turkish and 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 hated himself mm. because of his dad was fundamental, more fundamentalist, etc. And he'd heard all this terrible propaganda sure. about gays and stuff, and and so he wanted to lash out and and. Prove that he wasn't, so he's thinking of joining ISIS. Mm. And his friends and, and him got worked up, and and but before he went, he said he watched a, a clip of ours, and and I said, why would God make you a certain way, and then uh, and then be against it? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. And he said he said that in a, in a wonderful liberal mosque in in Germany, which apparently exists, right? <laughs> Thank Definitely God, exists. Right? Yes. It literally, thank Allah. <laughs> <laughs> thank Allah. Yes. <laughs> so, and he said it changed his mind. It got him to see things in a different way. And he didn't go, and and it saved his life. That's amazing. So I feel like I could retire off that alone. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, I feel mean, like you guys can do that on a mass scale, in a sense. Have you started to get stories of people saying, you know, I I, I wasn't sure. Uh, that it was okay, sure. but I heard you guys and stuff. Well, actually, one of the things that I've, that uh, moved me the most just recently, and I mean, I think it's important to say, like, we are a, a station that focuses on LGBTQ issues, or at least telling stories through that lens. But like, we don't only serve LGBTQ people with our content, right? Mm -hmm. And so, one of the stories that we recently had on was when um, one one of our we saw this story happening online where there was this woman who had an autistic son, and he uh, was nonverbal, and he heard Lil Nas X's uh, "Old Town Road." And she said that for the first time ever, without having to teach him something, she started hearing her son singing the lyrics to this song, and it was like a, a really big moment for them. Mm -hmm. So we had them on the show, and you know we talked to her, and she's she's an awesome woman named Shaletta Brundage, and she has her own podcast, uh, Two Hot Mamas, and like uh, we had a follow up with her because she met Little Nas X, and it was like a great moment, and she told us like. I just want to tell you, like, people have reached out to me and said that they heard our story on your show and they are working with their autistic kids and using music and it's like making a difference. And I always joke, like, I'm not a crier, which is a huge lie, but I've never <laughs> cried on the air. And yeah. like, that moved me because it was a moment of someone 
coming on the show and just sharing their experience and it having an impact on other people. And so, but, and it also wasn't necessarily a gay story, right? Like I wrote my, I published my coming out story a number of years ago in the Huffington Post and someone reached out to me and said, you know, I I really appreciate you sharing this because I was super Christian when I was, when I was brought up and I believed that I was wrong and terrible for being gay. Um, And I went into some serious depression around the idea of being gay and being Christian and God hating me and not believing that I should be this way. Um, and publishing my story, you know, really opened up my story to a lot of other folks. And, and I definitely got notes from people saying, like, it's had a major impact to be able to hear someone else's story. So it's, I think that's really important for us. Yeah. And, and to be fair, Old Town Road is very addictive. It is very addictive, yes. Yeah. And oh. it apparently will teach a nonverbal child how to speak. So. Yeah. Uh, I, it has even gotten me singing, uh, and my t- kids turned me on to it. I didn't even hear about it until my kids told me. Yeah. And if you, oh, except they thought they were taking their host, horse to the hotel room. If you listen to the If you song listen to again, it the wrong way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's so, awesome. All right. So. Uh, well, you broke the story on uh, Melania uh, doing plagiarism. I thought that might come up here. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, I, did. I mean, talking about a story that has nothing to do with the LGBTQ community, sure, sure. right? Yeah. Uh, did you break that when you were at Huffington Post? Um, I was actually, I had been laid off. I was a reporter in Tampa Bay, and I was uh, working at our ABC station there, and I got laid off. And I had been looking for a job for well over a year at that point. And I was like dabbling in doing some freelancing, and I was sitting in a Starbucks and watching the live stream, and like I finished the sentence out loud. With her, uh, with Melania Trump, and uh, I thought that's kind of odd. Why do I know that? Michelle Obama clearly said, "Oh my God!" And mm-hmm. you know, the rest was kind of history from there. Oh, that's awesome! All right, yeah. Now tell us more about what Drop the Subjects about. Yeah, so Drop the Subject is a new show. I um, I've I've just come onto the show uh, in the last couple of months, and it's with myself and Ali Johnson, and we're on every day um, from twelve to two, and we're actually doing like mega shows right now where we're on from ten to two. We do politics, we do pop culture. We do comedy stuff. We do like a lot of different things um, throughout that that time to kind of bring stories to people that are important and interesting, but also to have a good time on the air um, and to kind of get a bit of an escape, get a bit of the meal that you need as well, and also some of the dessert. Uh, yeah, and so you guys also play songs on the radio overall uh, yes. on these stations, right? We're a music talk station, so we so do music, music and, and talk. talk. So yeah. I never, I never. First of all, predominantly Lady Gaga, right? No, you'd be surprised. <laughs> you'd be surprised. That shallow song played for a long time, but, uh, but yeah. Now I'm playing. So seriously, how do you do music and talk? Is it like one hour music, one hour talk, or no? It's kind of staggered. So we do like seven, eight, maybe nine minutes if it's a really good conversation um, of of talk, and then we'll go into a few songs. We'll come back and talk some more, go into a commercial break. It kind of goes back and forth. So it gives our listeners the opportunity to hear the songs that they like, but also to get a little bit of information or have a good time listening to some familiar faces. It's almost like a morning show. But extended throughout. Yeah, well, we have a morning show that's with uh, Jay and Michaela. Jay is probably most well known as one of the original uh, five from the Fab Five on Queer Eye. Uh, And Michaela is an outstanding uh, talent as well. She's just coming off of a Las Vegas residency. And so they do our morning show called The Morning Beat. Uh, And then we follow them um, from 10 to 2 on the West Coast. And then we have Let's Go There with Shira and Ryan, who are, uh, they, they cover politics and pop culture, but in a very different kind of way. But Let's Go There is about like, let's have this difficult conversation. Let's have this this uh, chat about something that is difficult or, or a little bit uneasy. So we have that, and then we have Love Line that comes on in the evening as well. All right, that sounds awesome. And I love that there's somebody actually trying to do something new on the radio. Yeah. Which hasn't happened in a long, long Absolutely. time. Absolutely, it's a lot of fun. It's it's keeping us on our toes, and we're we're learning every day, but you know we're a little bit less than a year old, and we're, we're having a good time. All right, Jared Hill, everybody check out Channel Q. Thank you, man. Thank you, man, appreciate, appreciate it. it.
All right, we'll be right back. All right, back on the Young Turks. Uh, let's go to our next guest. Joining me now is Shahira Jalil Albasit. Um, and it's an amazing story uh, and a tragic one that uh, turns into one of hope. So I want to get to it right away. Shahira, how are you? I'm good, Chang. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, no problem. Uh, well, let's talk about the tragic part first. Uh, your cousin, Sabika Sheik, was killed in, in the Santa Fe, Texas school shooting. Uh, now we've had so many massacres that it's hard to keep up with them. But that was one of the more notable ones that happened in 2018. Uh, so first of all, tell us a little bit about that and then what uh, that got you to do uh, in response. So thank you so much for having me. Um, essentially, Sabika, like myself, she was an exchange student from Pakistan, the US. And I think that makes her story kind of like uh, the way our family feels all the more all the more disenfranchised when it comes to you know having a disenfranchised grief because we are a Pakistani family. We sent her to the US as a guest. She came to the US in 2017, almost completed her exchange year, her nine month period in the US. She was placed in Santa Fe High School in Texas. And guess what? She was just three weeks short, uh, literally 18 days away from her return home to Pakistan when on Friday, May 18th, the gunman barged into her arts class in the morning, uh, killed her, massacred her with nine of the people uh, on May 18th last year, the Santa Fe High School shooting. And that absolutely changed everything for our family. I mean, I think that's an understatement, frankly, uh, because it changed everything from the way we looked at the U.S. gun violence epidemic to the way we looked at, or I personally looked at, uh, you know, her legacy of, of young people wanting to do more and what she could have done. She could have done with her life. Yeah, so look, I know there are some parts of northern Pakistan that still have Taliban and are dangerous, etc. But are, are people in other countries like Pakistan beginning to worry that if you send your kids to America, it's just too dangerous a place with all these weapons in this country? I think, frankly, it's important to juxtapose how Sabika or any other young person, even in Pakistan, would have, you know. Um, experienced life as a young teenager. Uh, I think, I mean, given the fact that Pakistan has battled with terrorism is one thing, but uh, we grew growing up, growing up, Sabika, myself, would never fear the fact that we would go to school and get shot because we have, uh, you know, a systemic gun violence epidemic. That's never a thought we get the back of the head. But now, I mean, it's so unfortunate that, you know, when you talk about the U.S. gun violence, you talk about what what were perceived to be an anomalies like Columbine, like even Sandy Hook, uh, you would think that that wouldn't be the norm. But turns out that that is now literally an everyday occurrence. It's not just high schools. It's not just my students. It's literally I'm, I'm I'm a grad student. I'm an exchange student in Washington D.C. Uh, and every other day you're hearing stories about drive-by shootings, uh, shootings within the communities of color which are disproportionately impacted. So now, um, you know, as, as, as a Pakistani student, student studying in the U.S., I think I am in a special position to perhaps reflect on how people back home look at the U.S. gun violence. And I think I can speak uh, to the fact that, yes, it's now becoming very reflective of the, you know, lack of action on the part of U.S. legislators. And we actively think about the fact that, you know, guess what? US has um, a unique problem, which is the gun violence epidemic. Yeah, uh, look, I've talked to Europeans who are scared about coming to America because uh, you're much more likely to suffer random violence and one that ends in a lethal confrontation in America than almost any other country. 
And so it's, it's amazing what we've done to ruin this country in a sense. But now you're a Fulbright scholar, so you came up with an interesting different idea to partly to address this problem, but overall many other problems. And that is about emphasizing the youth. And you've got a 30% youth quota campaign, that's very interesting. I wanna talk to you about the details of that, but first, you have this amazing stat that I didn't know. What percentage of the world is under 30 years old? And what percentage of parliamentarians are under 30 years old across the country, across the world? So thank you for asking that because that essentially is what really hit it hard on me. I was like, is this for real? Because guess what? 51% of the world is currently under the age of 30. This, by the way, is the largest youth generation ever recorded in the history of the world. That says something. And you would think that that would be reflected in how many people really constitute or compose the the institutions of power. But turns out we don't even make 2%. It's so ridiculous for the lack of better word. We make 1.9%. So out of 45,000 members of the parliament in this world, only 1.9% of them are under the age of 30 or 35, depending on how you define youth, depending on the country specific context. But but we're not even 2% there. I do know one that's gotten a bit of notoriety, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And so it turns out that if you have people who are under 30 in Congress, they might make a difference. <laughs> no, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, um, for a fact, I think uh, part of the inspiration for me to really come up with the campaign was the fact that people like AOC uh, made it to Congress. And I think that really was unprecedented for a lot of reasons. Um, and that reflected the fact that, you know, not just in the US, but uh, like speaking from a strictly South Asian perspective, Indian Pakistani perspective. I've been talking to people in, you know, in the Middle East for this campaign. I've been reaching out to people in the African continent. And everywhere the common thread is that young progressives, I mean progressives, yes, young people, yes. But when these two subsets really collide, young progressives, and they make it to the institutions power, they make it to the institutions of decision making and policy making, they can challenge the status quo in historical, in unprecedented ways. Uh, so that's what we saw, like you said, in the, in the case of AOC. Yep, uh, so some parts of this campaign are, I don't think are controversial. Uh, so you say uh, the minimum age to vote should be the minimum age to be in Congress. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of instances, it's not, including our own Congress. You could vote when you're 18 years old, but you have to be 25 to get into Congress and 35 to be president. So. That's so logical, between you and I, I don't think we need to discuss that much further. Although there's a lot of work to do to get that to actually change in the laws of all those different countries. But let's get to the stuff that that I'm sure will be considered controversial. You say that there should be a youth quota of 30% of candidates under 35 on elected or reserved seats for national state and local elections. So an actual quota, You, how, how would you, I mean, before we even get to how you would enforce that, you know, most people will say quotas don't sound quite right. Why not just let the people decide? And if they like younger representatives, they'll elect younger representatives. And if not, they'll elect older representatives. So here's the here's the interesting thing about it. Currently, the research on quotas, you're absolutely correct with your with your concern about it. And people can can be skeptical about it. And 
some part of it, I would give them that. It, it's, it's legitimate. Why is that? Because the research around quotas is absolutely absent. I mean, it's not there. There is, there is very limited literature which really establishes their, the fact that they lack efficacy. Uh, so when the argument comes up that quotas do not work, we need to look at how many countries actually have instituted quotas and how many of those quotas are actually holistic. For instance, uh, currently right now, 21 countries have some sort of quotas, but they're not holistic or you know, all-encompassing in the fact, in the sense that they eventually end up in tokenizing young people. For instance, I can think of the example of Uganda, which has five seats allocated or you know, five reserved seats for, for young people. I struggle to think how much would five seats really do in making sure that young people are represented. And then essentially, one of the critiques in quotas is, like you said, that they're not able to do enough, that they're perhaps not able to put enough progressives or put enough young people into office. But guess what? I mean, the whole hierarchy, and that essentially forms the motivation of this campaign, the entire hierarchy of how intra-party, intra-political party uh, democracy works, or the lack of it works, is that it essentially requires you to have a certain social capital. It essentially requires you to have a certain financial capital to be able to become visible to, to the incumbents, to be to, you know, to become visible to those who hold power, the status quo, the establishments. And that is why uh, one of the requirements, uh, one of the agendas of this quota is to ensure proportional representation to historically marginalized groups. Because coming from, you know, coming from the background that I, I do, I've seen most visibly, not just in Pakistan, but, but to my own surprise in the U.S., that young people who come from communities which have been historically disenfranchised really lack the resources to become visible for them to really, you know, penetrate into, into the culture of political parties. That essentially means that they cannot, they cannot pitch themselves as capable enough. They cannot pitch themselves as ready enough uh, for the status quo to take them seriously. As a consequence of which, even if you have quotas, yes, they will be ineffective because they're not, they're not holistic in their design. They're not really responding to the fact that youth is a cross-cutting identity. It's not a monolith. Uh, yeah. And you cannot just go out and say that, you know, we're just putting a number on how many people we need in office and that will do. No, it won't. And that's essentially why this campaign is not revolving around one or two points. It's really making a five-point agenda because it wants this youth quota to be to be responsive of the localized contextual needs of specific countries. So, I mean, I think I agree with playing number five the most because you're talking about imposing strict limits on corporate donations and electoral campaign spending. Because that's what's, I mean, there's two elements to that. One, it protects the status quo because the corporations and the big donors like the status quo. They don't want it disturbed, so they give money to people who are already incumbents, who are already old. Uh, and the second part of it is the, old, uh, the young are idealistic. Uh, that's not good for corporate donors. You don't want idealism, you wanna crush that idealism and have people like Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump give you everything you want uh, <laughs> because they're jaded and they've lived and, and grew up in corruption. So I, I love plank number five, but I, I wanna ask you one last plank that I'm uh, more unsure about, which is number four. You're saying you should also ensure proportional representation of gender, racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic minorities in within your youth quota. So mm -hmm. how would a Pakistan do that, for example? So I get it on the socioeconomic issues, I get it on gender issues, 
So would Pakistan have to ensure that more Hindus also get representation? How would that work? So it's again, it's it's. I think that's one point which I find very intersectional, not just um, not just in respect to how Pakistan would respond to it, but in in the fact that how a variety of other countries would respond to it. We can take the example of India, where right now we just came out of you know one of the in fact the largest um, elections in the world, and what we saw is that uh, you know there are a number of cross-cutting identities, like I mentioned. In you have caste identities, unfortunately, which which still prevail right now. Uh, you have Dalits who cannot really make um, a dent because they don't have the social capital politically. Uh, in Pakistan, for instance, we recently had the example of uh, a Hindu, like you mentioned, uh, Krishna Kumari, who won on the seat of the Senate um, in what was a historic win. Uh, similarly, there would be multiple avenues, and I think the, the avenues kind of exist. And why is that? Because these these political parties kind of like have the capital to work with the people and identify if they, if they, like you said, if they come down to it. That's that's precisely the point of it. If the political parties can really get down to understand that there needs to be an institutionalization of getting more young people into office, that's 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 their buy-in right there. And I think beyond that, once we get their buy-in, buy-in, beyond that, I don't see a greater challenge of how would they kind of struggle with identifying these uh, historically marginalized groups and getting them the ticket, the political ticket, the electoral ticket run for office. I don't see that much of a challenge. I think the greater challenge would be, like you said, would be to to create a global momentum, a global conversation around the need to have more young people in office in an institutionalized way, which would get these incumbents, these status quo, to recognize the need for it and really come to the table uh, and kind of like start the conversation on on something like this. All right, Youth Day is coming up on August 12, 2019, obviously. So uh, if you guys wanna help by then, go to change.org slash p slash young, sign the petition. Uh, and uh, and obviously that'll strengthen uh, the voice of the youth uh, across the world. Shahira, thank you so much for joining us on the Young Turks, we appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Jay. thank you so much. Okay. All right, now when we come back for the members, we are going to do a segment on how Mississippi is saying, if you've got a vegetarian hot dog, don't you dare call it a hot dog. And it's as usual, unfortunately, a hilarious story of right wing folly in this country, among other topics that Brett and I are gonna discuss. So tyt.com slash trial to become a member, try it out week for free for a week. All right, so for members, stay right here, we'll be right back.